0: Our Father, we're thankful that through the years, your faithfulness is unchanging. We're so grateful, Lord, that as we spend time in your word, we see what it is that you are saying to us individually and to the human race collectively down through the centuries concerning who you are and what you expect of those that you've called by your name. We have gathered here, our Lord, because we are called by your name. We call ourselves Christians followers of Christ. And Father, I pray that we will, through the Word, be strengthened in what it means to literally be a follower of Christ, not someone who simply has a label, but somebody whose life exudes the very presence of Christ, even as these persons do in the book that we'll be studying today. Lord, it's such a powerful testimony of what it means to be excellent for you And so, Lord, I I pray that you will guide our study, and I pray your blessing upon each one here today. And for those of our membership who are away uh, visiting with friends or wherever they may be this morning, bless them and grant protection in their travels. Lord, we know this is a busy weekend and so many people on the road, and we ask for safety for these that are our friends and, and our loved ones. And now, Father, we ask you to bless as the word is proclaimed throughout this church this morning. In Christ's name, amen. As a prologue to the book of Ruth, I would like to read a few verses from Psalm 118. Many of you are familiar with Psalm 118, at least in part. Uh, In Psalm 118, in the first part of it, the word loving-kindness keeps showing up. The the Hebrew chesed. And loving-kindness is one of the most prominent attributes of God. And that's what we find to be one of the major themes of the book of Ruth. So I'd like to read the first nine verses of Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. O let Israel say, his loving kindness is everlasting. O let the house of Aaron say, his loving kindness is everlasting. O let those who fear the Lord say, His loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore I shall look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. To me, that's kind of a commentary of what God has sought to do down through the centuries through his people Israel, and then subsequently to us who are, by faith, the children of Abraham. If you look at your outline, which was handed out to you this morning, you'll notice that we will start with some background information, which I hope will set the scene for our study of the book of Ruth. We have an opportunity today to begin a study of one of the most delightful accounts in the Bible. And I am not intending that to be a pun, even though it could be taken that way, since Naomi's name means delightful. Compared to the book of Judges, I have put down there under 1A1, The book of Ruth is like a rose in the desert, like this beautiful flower in the midst or against a background of chaos, of aridity, of of horribleness. And we just went through that over the past nearly a year, moving through the book of Judges. And the book of Judges, it it, it portrays God in many ways. Uh, we, We see the characters of the Shofetim. We, we see a God's faithfulness, and, and yet the story that, that we encounter through the book of Judges is kind of a horrific story in many ways, as we have noted. One commentator referred to the book of Judges as a pearl against a totally black background. In many ways, I think that is true. Instead of violence, begetting violence, as we see over and over again in the time period which is the setting for the book of Ruth, we have a story that, although it begins, as we will see, with extreme hardship for one particular family, and, and, and for more than that, it climaxes in such a wonderful way in love and redemption. I think it helps us to understand, and I think these, these, this truth is very significant for us to grasp. It, it helps us to understand that in the midst of all the tragedies that occurred in the dark ages of Israel... And the book of Judges might be viewed as the dark ages of Israel. God was at work bringing redemption to individuals. Even though I, I don't think you can take a piece of scripture out that the word doesn't specifically say is a principle and necessarily make a principle out of it. But I believe in the concept that whereas Elijah, when he had to run away from Jezebel and was out in the desert and was telling God that he alone was left that he might as well die. There's nobody left that's faithful to the Lord. The Lord came back and said, there are 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And I think that's a principle that we can follow throughout Scripture. The number may not be 7,000, but God always has his remnant. Even in the days of Noah, there was a remnant. It was a very small remnant, eight people. But nevertheless, God always has his remnant. And when I study church history, the 2,000 years from the time of Christ to to the present, uh, that that theme keeps running through. Even though we see the church seemingly going off in, in pagan ways, we still, I believe, have to understand that God always has had his remnant. There always was a kind of a New Testament church living and existing somewhere. There always were those who already understood principles that would be later Uh, profoundly uh, presented in the Reformation that existed before the Reformation uh, throughout the history of the church. And so, as we look at the the book of Ruth, what we find is, I think, that uh, we can derive from this book that no matter what God may be doing on a national or even greater and international scale, His primary concern is with the individual. With you, with me, with our neighbor, our loved one, our friend. And that is where we have to keep our focus. Yes, we need to pray about things on a national level. We need to pray about things on an international level. But our life has to be lived on, our day, on a day-by-day basis with our contacts with individuals, with our family, our friends, our co-workers, with our missionaries that have been a part of us and, and for whom we pray. All of these need to be the part of the focus. We, we can't expend our energies worrying about the national problems of this country, even though we can pray, of course, for them. We're enjoined to pray for our leadership. And, and worrying about the chaos in the world and what's the UN doing next. Uh, you know, that, that can't be our focus. We have to focus at the place where God has put us. And, and that's what you come out with as you study the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth has a little vignette of, in, in effect, ultimately, three people. And, uh, you know, the folk, you don't even know what the national situation is in Israel at the time. You don't know what the international situation is. It's just this, these lives of, of these few individuals. Yeah. I think anon- another interesting point is that this is one of only two books in the entire Bible that bears the name of a woman. And it is the only book in the Bible that bears the name of a Gentile woman, Ruth. As we shall see, I think this too will help, uh, to see, help us to see something of the nature and the purpose of God. God is not as parochial, as narrow-minded, as bigoted as we tend to be in the sense of He wants, He's not willing that any should perish. He's not willing that any should perish whether they be Jew or Gentile, uh, whether they be male or female, whether they be slave or free. And this this is a story that helped to broaden the Jewish thinking a little bit, not a lot, but at least a little bit, to know that they could incorporate, even within the, the line of the great king, a person who was a Gentile by birth and by environment. The importance of this little scroll to the Jews can be seen by the statement I'm going to read to you from John Reed, who is a commentator. And he says this, the book of Ruth is read annually by Orthodox Jews on the Feast of Pentecost. This feast commemorates the giving of the law on Mount Sinai and occurs at the beginning of the offering called the first fruits of the harvest. Ruth's betrothal took place during this festive harvest season when barley was being winnowed. And we find that as we go through the study. And so the book of Ruth, by Orthodox Jews, is read every year. About this time of the year, actually a little bit earlier maybe, maybe in April. Oh, at the Feast of Pentecost. And, And so that story is constantly being refreshed in the minds of the Orthodox Jews. Now, the name of the book in Hebrew is Companion, which is thought to be the meaning of the name Ruth. However, the name Ruth is not a Jewish name. It's a Gentile name. And its meaning, its exact meaning, is very uncertain. Even Jewish scholars don't really know for sure what the meaning of the name Ruth is. Now, you probably are aware of the fact that as you go through our Old Testament, you are not reading the Old Testament in the order that the Jews collected it together. The Jewish Old Testament, or the Jewish scripture, was originally put together in a different order. It starts with the Torah, the Torah, even as we do here, the Pentateuch, but it goes to a, a section called the Nevim, which is the prophets, and then it goes to another section called the Kethuvim, which is where Ruth is. The Kethuvim are the writings, and it is one of the writings. It is not placed in the question Egypt but in the 3rd and 2nd centuries before Christ. Now, you may have heard the story that there was a very large Jewish community in Alexandria, Egypt, in the time before Christ. Alexandria, Egypt, is named for? Alexander. Alexander. Alexander the Great made that the principal city of of his pharaohship in Egypt. And the following pharaohs who ruled in Egypt all the way down to the famous Cleopatra were all Greeks. They were not Egyptians because Alexander established a Greek rule in in Egypt, and lots of Jews migrated to Alexandria, and it was a great center of uh, scholarship. It had the largest library in the ancient world, and the Jews who were living there, however, were becoming disassociated with their homeland and with their own language. And as a result, according to the story, whether this is true or not is hard to tell, the pharaoh invited some Jewish scholars to come to Egypt and to work with the local scholars in translating the Old Testament into Greek so that this book could be in the great library there in Alexandria and so that the Jews there would not lose contact with their past. Now, whether the pharaoh part is true or not, you know, that's part of the legend, but nevertheless, Uh, And, of course, the idea it's called the Septuagint is that 70 scholars were invited to come, and so you have the Septuagint, which is 70. Whatever the case was, it was actually translated in Alexandria, Egypt. And the order that the books were put in there was more chronological. Why? Greek influence. We have been influenced by the Greeks. We tend to think more linearly as the Greeks did. The Hebrews do not think linearly. And to them, chronology is not that important. It doesn't matter what happened in what particular annual order, but it is to us. You know? I mean, we all went through this this last year, right? And you had the hundred leading persons of the last millennium and the 25 leading persons or stories of the last century. I mean, everything was so chronological. That's the way we think. So, Ruth has been placed where it is, right after the book of Judges, because that is the chronology of it. Not that it, in, it occurs after Judges, but that's the closest you can do without saying, okay, well, we're going to have this part of Judges, then we're going to put Ruth, then we're going to have that part of Judges, you know. So it fits there as close as it can be made chronologically to fit. So that said, what about the date of the book of Ruth? Well, there are two dates concerning this book they are important to us. One is the dates of the actual event, when did Ruth live? And the other is the date of the writing of the book of Ruth. Ruth did not write the book about herself. Nobody believes that she did. Well, the former date, the the date of the actual story of Ruth, is is easier to uh, determine or at least to come approximately close to than is the date of the writing of the book. The story of Ruth occurred during the era of the Judges. This is clear from the very first verse, because in Ruth 1.1 it says, Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And so the book sets itself within that period of time. So in the, in the days of the Shofetim, uh we have this little vignette. So it's like looking at the whole era of the judges and then just penetrating right down into one little period of time and looking at a few lives within that time. And I think it is important for us to realize that they are not the only people that God touched during the whole period of the Judges, that Ruth and Naomi and Boaz were not the only people who lived for God during the whole 200 years or whatever it is of the period of Judges. God could have dipsticked down many times had He chosen to, but He didn't. He chose this particular story to inspire and to have related the era of the judges was at least 200 years long. And so, when during the era of the judges did the story of Ruth occur? And can we determine that? Well, there are two things in the story that help us. One is the fact it says that there was a famine in the land. And obviously, it was a major famine. It wasn't just like, well, you know, crops failed this year, we'll have to rain, wait for rain next year. It was like a long term famine, kind of like what they're predicting for Southern California. Uh, in the next several decades. You know, total lack of rain down in the southern half of the state. And the other is the marriage of Ruth to Boaz. Now, neither famine or drought are mentioned anywhere in the book of Ruth. You read through it, and you're, uh, I'm sorry, in the book of Judges. You read through the book of Judges, you're not going to find anywhere where it says, well, there was a famine in the land or there was a drought in, in the land. But there are at least two possible times that may be the setting for the story, and I've given them there to you in the outline. First is the era uh, beginning with the judgeship of Ehud. Let me read uh, a little bit from that story, going back to the third chapter of Judges. Judges 3, beginning at verse 12. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, so that the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. And the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute to him, by him to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, there's the the connection here is partly the fact that we're talking about Moab, and the king of Moab here. If you look at the uh, last next to the last verse in that same chapter in Judges, we read: So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. So Ehud was able to have victory or or to stimulate victory over Moab, and the Moabites were suppressed during the time of Israel, uh, during, during the time of Ehud and beyond that. And so could this be the setting? Could it be the setting when Moab was subjugated to Israel that we have the story of Elimelech taking his wife Naomi and his two sons and moving to Moab because of famine and living in Moab? You do not find very many accounts in Scripture of biblical people, uh, that, that is Jews, moving off and living in a Gentile land. Not very many. Because the way the Jews today feel about the Arabs and vice versa is pretty much the way they have always felt relative to the Gentile neighbors that surround um, Israel. And so it would seem very possible that it would have been while Moab was subject to Israel that Israelis or Israelites could move there and uh, survive with some degree of peace and good relationship with the Moabites and even intermarry with them, as we'll see that uh, the sons of Elimelech did. Secondly, a second possibility is the period just before the judgeship of Gideon. You remember the story of the Midianites and the Amalekites, and they came and they spread out all over Israel, and they would move across Israel, and they would literally devastate the land. Year after year after year, they would come in and devastate the land. If we look at the sixth chapter of Judges, uh, beginning at verse three, for it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up against the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance In Israel, as well as no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come in like locusts for number. Both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. So what we're seeing here is the very great possibility that the famine was not produced by a drought but was produced by the constant ravaging of the land by the Midianites and their allies. Because the scripture says they ravaged the land all the way down to Gaza. And of course the story we're talking about beginning today uh, is centered at Bethlehem. So it could have been that they ravaged this whole area right on through here and by constantly stealing the crops. Remember Gideon was down in a place where you crushed grapes Uh, trying to thresh a little bit of, of wheat or barley so that the Midianites wouldn't see him do that because they were stealing everything, allowing their animals to eat everything else. And so Israel had very little left. So that could have generated the famine which is referred to in the book of Ruth. Many scholars seem to lean towards the era of Gideon as approximately the time of the story of Ruth. That the story of Ruth could not be set later in the era of the judges can be derived from the lineage of Boaz. Now, Boaz is one of the main characters, as you know, if you've read the book of Ruth, which I'm sure all of you have many times. In 1 Chronicles 2.11, we read that Salmon became the father of Boaz. And you go over to the first chapter of the book of Matthew in the fifth and sixth verses, you read, and to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab, and to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed Jesse, and to Jesse was born David. Now, if you look at the book of Ruth itself, at the very, very end of the book, verses 21 and 22, chapter 4, verses 21 and 22, we read these same words, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. David is the last word in the book. So, somehow, the timing has to relate to the life of Boaz, obviously. Now, remember Rahab. Rahab was that Canaanite harlot who was in the city of Jericho. And when uh, Joshua sent spies to check out Jericho to see if it was uh, capturable, I suppose you could say, the spies went into the city and... uh, Uh, They were harbored overnight by Rahab, or at least into the night by Rahab, and, and they then escaped. And we know the conversation that went on between the spies and Rahab, and that is, she knew that God had given her land, her city, into the hands of the Israelites, and she trusted in the God of Israel. And so she becomes a type of Ruth, you might say, a precursor to Ruth. Uh, A woman who was a Canaanite, a pagan originally, who has come to faith in God by what means? Do you know, I know you do, that God is able to bring people to a knowledge of himself without a human being intervening? Uh, He doesn't normally do that, but he can. (laughs) As the word says, is anything impossible to God? No. And, of course, we don't know how Ruth came, uh, Rahab came to a knowledge. She heard all the things that the other Canaanites heard, but only she believed. And so, you remember, Rahab was saved in the conquest of Jericho. And we're told in Scripture, and that was at the first year of the conquest, clear back when Joshua was first leading the Israelites in the land, and, and the conquest went on for seven years. We're told in scripture that Rahab then married Salmon. Salmon of the tribe of Judah married Rahab, the former harlot. And we don't know when Salmon re- married Rahab. Was it soon after the conquest? Was it many years into the conquest? We don't know. Scripture doesn't say. <laughs> but at some point he married Rahab. And from, ra- from that marriage came Boaz, the guy we're talking about. So here is the man born who's the hero of the story, the kinsman redeemer of the story, the, the, the image of God's attribute in this area, who is born to a woman and a man who were involved in the actual conquest during the days of Joshua. So that, that seems to necessitate fairly early in the time of the book of Judges, wouldn't you think? We're not told, of course, how long they were married before Boaz was born. Boaz probably had siblings. They're, they're not mentioned in scripture. Uh, Was Boaz an older son, a younger son? We don't know. We don't know how uh, old Boaz was when he married Ruth either. But the implication is, from the words of Boaz himself, was that he probably was on the older side rather than on the younger side. Because he says to Ruth, at one point, you're a a wonderful woman because rather than chasing after younger men, he implies you're you're interested in uh, doing what's right for Naomi and marrying the kinsman redeemer who I would be. Uh, so, the implication was that he was an older man. So, let's say that he was not born until late in the marriage of Rahab and, then, and now the story with Ruth occurs when he's 60 or, or whatever, something of that order. We might say, whoa, what you mean <laughs> 60? Well, could very well be. So, even though that puts it on a few years, we're still probably not halfway through the era of the judges uh, when the story of Ruth occurs. So, probably no later than the time of Gideon, which would put us most likely in the later part of the 13th century, or maybe in the earlier part of the 12th century before Christ. In other words, over 3,000 years ago. And now what about the date of the writing of the book itself? This is more problematic. Scholars have argued For dates ranging from the 11th century before Christ to the 5th century before Christ. There always are liberal scholars, as you are well aware of. And and these are scholars that you look at very cursorily and say, yeah, okay. And move on to somebody who has some real faith. And, of course, liberal scholars will look for any way they can possibly find to make it as human a story as possible, to, to extract God out of it as much as possible, to to make it other than a divinely inspired word for our edification, but just make it a cute little story. And, and to make it, for example, a post-exilic uh, commentary uh, uh, about the Israelites being anti Arab or something like that, you know, to try to show the Israelites that you all know in your history there are Gentiles, so you shouldn't be so anti-Gentile. No, I don't, I don't think that was the primary uh, reason for the story, and I don't think it was written in the post-exilic period after the exile of the Jews into Babylon. Most ancient Hebrews believe that it was written by Samuel. Well, if it was written by Samuel, that puts it in the 11th century, because that's when Samuel lived. And we know that because Samuel anoints David to be king, and we know David was born and lived and died in the 11th century before Christ. David is mentioned near the end of the book. In fact, it's the last, his name is the last word in the book. So obviously, whoever wrote it had to have been around at the time that David was anointed king. Because why else would you mention this lineage? Why else would you mention David? Who's David? This is a guy who chased sheep around the hillside. If he hadn't been anointed king of Israel, he'd have been a nobody just like most of the rest of the people who lived in Israel's history. You look through the genealogy and you may think, wow, there's a lot of people in the genealogy. Well, you add them up and there aren't very many considered in the millions who lived, whose names are absolutely unknown to us. They're known to God, but not to us. It's one of the frustrating things about studying history. And many people criticize history as being just the study of uh, kings and princes and, and warlords and generals. Well, part of the reason for that is those are the only people we have any record of. We don't have any record of John Doe Plowman, you know, and his wife who lived out there. We have no idea. You know, most of you, if you could trace your ancestry back, probably, even though most of us would like to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, way back there in the Middle Ages, uh, my ancestor was King so-and-so of, you know, Transylvania or wherever. And, but most of you, you probably have ancestors who were nobodies back in the Middle Ages, and, and that's probably true for most of us. And, and that's one of the reasons we can't trace our ancestry back very far. Some of you are fortunate you can trace your ancestry back to the Mayflower, maybe. And even beyond that, you know, my, my mother's maiden name is Boyd. Boyd is one of the clans that's associated with the Stuarts. The Stuarts were the ruling clan of Scotland. Does that mean we have royal blood? I doubt it. You know, But you, know, you, you just can't, for the most part, push it back that far. And probably most of us don't want to. In who was it we were talking to the other day that said they pushed their ancestry back till they found a horse thief and then he stopped? <laughs> Don't want to go any further than this. David is mentioned because this lineage is important. And part of the purpose of this book is to validate the lineage of David. David is a legitimate descendant of Judah. And and this is how it comes. And even though, yes, there's a Rahab and a Ruth in that line, nevertheless, it is a legitimate descent through the tribe of Judah. So most conservative scholars place the writing of the book of Ruth either in the reign of David or in the reign of Solomon by an unknown scribe. That's always, of course, a real easy way to get out of it, an unknown scribe. Personally, I like Samuel. (laughs) And uh, I, I'm, I would not be surprised to know that Samuel produced the book. There are parts of the book of Samuel in which the, the style of the Hebrew is very similar to that of Ruth, but there are other parts where it's not. And that's what gives the scholars, uh, you know, kind of makes them uncertain about whether to attach it to Samuel or not. Well, I think what is further important, of course, is the purpose of the book, and, and, and this becomes more our focus. The book deals with so few people that it has very little historical value. You can't look at the book of Ruth and say, wow, this just opens up a whole period of time to me. No, it doesn't. (laughs) It talks about six people, mostly, and gives so little historical information that it just becomes a little glimpse, kind of a vignette. Certainly, at least a part of the purpose of the book was, as I mentioned a minute ago, to validate the lineage of David. Now, to you and to me, we'd say, is that a good reason to write a whole book to the Jews? Yes, that's a big reason to write a whole book. Because that genealogy is so important to them. And, of course, especially the genealogy of David. And David is the greatest king in Israel's history. I mean, the, the Jews consider David to be their great king. And of course, he was a great king. When, when David was in power, at the height of his power, he ruled more land than the Jews have ever ruled at any other time, except of course inher- Solomon inherited it. But, I mean, they uh, ruled clear down off the map, this way, all the way up this side, and all the way up to the Euphrates River over here. That was greater Israel during the time of David and part of the time of Solomon. A huge area. Much larger than the modern state of Israel. Uh, probably triple or four times the modern state of Israel in area, And it was, it, at that time, it was a very significant state. And that's one of the reasons why when Solomon comes to power, Sheba comes, the Queen of Sheba comes and says, the whole story of your wealth and your wisdom has come all the way down to me in Ethiopia or Yemen or wherever it was she came from. Uh, so Israel was not just a piddly little state at that time. It was, it was one of the great states in, in that part of the world. And of course, when you read, when, if we get to the story of David, you, you discover he had a mighty army. It's really fascinating. For those of you who have been to Israel, and I know many of you have. For those of you who haven't, is to go over there and look at some of the places where you can literally see that Solomon built this and you can see this casemate style of architecture, which was Solomonic construction, and know that Solomon built this as a garrison house for his army and his cavalry, his, his chariots and all of this, to help keep his, his mighty kingdom strong. And, and so you can just look physically in the earth here and, and see evidence of, of the great Israel that existed under the Davidic and Solomonic period. Jim? Did the Israel's uh, land during David's time, how would that compare to what God gave them as the promise? Was it still short? It it was still short in some ways, in that it didn't control Phoenicia, and it didn't go all the way down, depending on what the river of Egypt means. We talked about that. The river of Egypt, some things, think means a brook down here called the brook of Egypt, which is a, a wadi, which is dry most of the time, that runs from the Sinai into the sea. Others think it means the Nile. If it means the Nile, Israel has never controlled to the Nile. Well, they did during the period between <laughs> the Six-Day War and, uh, and uh, the 73 War. They did. They hold, controlled the whole Sinai. But they have never, other than in David's time, and, and it does say that to the Euphrates and during David's time in Solomon's, they did actually possess out to the Euphrates. But they didn't possess Phoenicia over here which was supposed to be a part, at least a portion of Phoenicia, was supposed to be a part of Israel. So, of course, as you know, many are looking to the days of uh, the end times to be the time when Israel will expand to those borders. And I'm not saying whether it will or won't. A greater purpose seems to be kind of capsulized in the words of John Reed, the commentator, where he says, The Lord is faithful in His business of loving superintending and providentially caring for His people. God's people should also be about His business in the ordinary activities of daily living. Since God's people are recipients of His grace, they, like Ruth and Boaz, should respond in faithful obedience to Him and in gracious acts towards other people. Most of us will never be A Billy Graham. But God wants us to be faithful in our daily living just as Ruth was faithful. Did Ruth go around trumpeting her virtues? No. She faithfully did what God called her to do and others trumpeted her virtues. And so that's what we're to do in our job and in our school and wherever we are to to live virtuously before the Lord, to live excellently as Ruth did and as Boaz did and then to allow God to work through us, to tell the story of who He is to all people. And if it, to me, that's probably one of the most powerful uh, messages that comes out of the book of Ruth. Kind of a homely thing in the sense of everyday kind of life. Not that you're going to get to go on a mission trip and, and stand on the top of uh, the Mount of Olives and preach the word to unregenerate Jews or some such thing but that people see the Word of God in you as you live each day. And that's the way it was with Ruth and Naomi. I mean, who knew Ruth and Naomi and Boaz other than a few people in Bethlehem? Nobody. So I think to put it succinctly, what we're looking at in the book of Ruth is a powerful lesson in divine grace. Divine grace. The grace he poured out on Naomi, the grace he poured out on Ruth and Boaz, and posthumously to Elimelech. The husband of Naomi, and that which they in turn reflected to those around them. And and I think one of the mightiest things we see is that both Ruth and Boaz in the story of Book of Ruth are looked upon by their peers as people of integrity, people of integrity. And if that isn't a powerful lesson today, if that isn't a needed lesson today, we who live in a land where integrity has gone by the board when even in the highest offices of the land, integrity is not modeled. What can we expect? You and I have to live in Christian integrity today in order to stem the flood of this country going down the slopes into the pit in a hurry. Well, let, let me read the first five verses of the book of Ruth. We don't have time to develop them, but I want us to, to read and, and get into the initial events here. The, the first chapter is filled with pain. The first chapter of the book of Ruth is kind of a sad story. But in the second ver- chapter, it begins to make a turn. And by the time you get to third and fourth chapters, whoo, it's a wonderful story. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Then both Malan and Killian also died, and the, women, the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Sad story, right? Up to this point. Famine, death. Fortunately, once you get past verse 4, nobody else dies in the book. <laughs> nobody else dies in the book. Now compare that to the book of Judges, which just bleeds from every page. I mean, thousands. I don't know if anybody could ever sit down and compute from the first chapter of Judges of the end and try to estimate how many people die in that book. It's gotta be in the millions, at least the hundreds of thousands, a lot of people. I don't mean of natural causes, I mean of of tragic death. And uh, these may have been natural causes even though it seems rather unlikely because Elimelech I don't think was ancient of days and obviously his two sons weren't so old. They'd just gotten married. So what is natural cause? Well, disease, I suppose be called a natural cause. But anyway, we'll start looking at Ruth, the story. And to me, it's, it's really an exciting story. And when you probe into it in depth, things just leap out of almost every verse that are kind of thrilling about the character and the nature of our God.